everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Love at First Laugh, the Green Room Edition. I am so excited today because my guest has Matt Kreds. He is uber talented, amazing. I'm a big fan. I'm just going to name some of the creds and we're going to talk about some of them because we're probably not going to have time to talk about everything I want to talk to him about. It's crazy. So he was on the new hit Marvel series, WandaVision, Cohen Brothers, A Serious Man, Leg Bells in a World, Fargo, Casual, Girls, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Lady Dynamite, and seven Woody Allen films more than any other actor besides Mia Farrow and Woody himself. Please welcome the amazing, the uber-talented, Mr. Fred Melamed. Yay, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank <laughs> you for that uh, florid introduction. It's very, very kind of you. I appreciate it. I'm Latina. We're like very passionate <laughs> and very good with words. You know, it's like a telenovela introduction, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, um, but we mean it. It's not like BS, you know, we're just like, I, I that's the way that. we are. Yeah. It's a little intense for some people sometimes. I listen, I'm a, I'm a Sephardic Jew. That's like both in one. Yeah. <laughs> and also a Jew. You can't get to, unless maybe you're Italian, you can't get too much more passionate than that. I don't know. Oh my Oh my God. Okay. So I, I am three quarters Italian. Yeah. So we're like up there. Good. This is going to be a very, <laughs> a very matching energies. Excellent. Uh, so the first question I wanted to ask you, Fred, is because I'm a stand up and I wanted to ask you, have you ever tried stand up? Only very briefly. Um, when I was in drama school, uh, I, I went to drama school with many people who became big, famous, far more famous and important than me. Uh, one of whom was David Allen Greer. Yes. Uh, he was in my class. So he he did stand up back then a bit. And uh, there was a cabaret at Yale, which everybody took part in, you know, acted in and wrote and directed plays and stuff. And they had some nights of doing stand up. So he kind of convinced me to try it, which I did. Uh, and uh, had an interesting experience with it. But I, I remember thinking that uh, this is so, so tough. It's just you and them or me, it's just me and them. Yes. Uh, and there are people who love that experience. I have, as I, as you've, as I've told you, I have many friends, mm -hmm. really wonderful uh, comedians. You know, giants in my view, anyway. In the in the in the, in the co uh, com comedian world, uh, Maria Bamford, Patton Oswalt, uh, Dimitri Martin. These are all you know people that I consider really close friends at certain points, and uh, they enjoy the intensity of it and they enjoy the fact that it's just them in the audience. But as an actor, I'm used to having a, a character uh, and also a situation uh, in which I can um, sort of, uh, into which I can throw myself. Um, and it's a little raw to just take my meat out there every night and expose it to the judgment of people and, you know. But I mean, for example, I always thought it was fascinating that Maria Bamford, who I did a show with, uh, several shows, but one in particular called Lady Dynamite, um, who I adore, um, was always completely comfortable in one, you know, doing, and she does big venues like colleges and other things and, uh, and travels around the country and does lots of dates, various places, but acting, she was always, uh, a little, uh, uneasy, which uh, shocked me. And as you, uh, you know, and especially because so much of her comedy involves acting, she does characters, you know, brilliantly. Yes. But uh, to her, they were different things. So she she approached acting with a, a little more trepidation. So it was really interesting for me to see that. And uh, we originally did a show called Benched together. Got to be good friends with her. And then 
uh, years later when she got her show, she actually uh, asked uh, the producers of that show to hire me for that show. So that was one of those wonderful uh, things that occasionally rarely happened where there was nobody else vying for it. It was just, you know, uh, uh, showed up, offered to me as a great, and I, I loved I loved it and I loved doing it. I loved the people on it also. We had a fantastic cast, uh, you know, Mo Collins and, and uh, Anna Gasteyer and so many other great people in addition to Maria. Oh, absolutely. And here we have Stacy. Don't forget Lady Dynamite. He was brilliant. I agree. You were so funny. Thank you. Uh, that was a total joy, you know, as I said, really a uh, wonderful, fun experience. And and Bruce, uh, the, the real Bruce, um, is a real person, although he's not uh, the inept um, kind of fool that we made him. <laughs> 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 really interesting story about Bruce. I, I'll, I'll tell you the story about Bruce. So uh, in real life, Maria's manager is Bruce Smith. Yes. Uh, excellent top flight comedy manager. He began his career uh, as a rock musician. He's from Long Island, where I'm also from. I'm from Queens. He's from with the tip of which is the tip of Long Island. Um, so he, as many people of our generation, wanted to be uh, a musician. You know, that was when, when I was growing up. It's funny. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a musician. I had a psychiatrist. <laughs> And I, I think I told you, this. I had a psychiatrist and I once dreamt that I put on my electric guitar and went running through a doorway and broke my electric guitar in half. A typical oh, phallic dream of a teenager, you know, you get your, oh your my God. dick cut off. Yeah. So, yeah. And the psychiatrist told me when I was young, everybody used to dream they had a sports car and ran into a wall. Now everybody dreams they have a guitar and it gets broken in half. So in my generation, playing guitar was the big deal. Um, uh, so like me, he was a musician, but he was a keyboardist. So uh, that was his initial kind of thing in show business. And over many years, he became a manager and he has many, many great clients, many, many of whom have done very well and wh whom I know. But he's no longer kind of in the spotlight himself. He's backstage. He's a, he's a guy who makes deals and all that kind of stuff. So when he found out that he was to be a major character on Lady Dynamite, Maria's show, that this was kind of the idea, it was the basis was the relationship between the two of them. He was so excited. And, you know, he, he friended me on Facebook and we got together and we had lunch together, we got to know each other and all that. And he was, you know, for him, it was a, it was a especially big deal because he is fe featured so prominently in this show or, or you know, his manke, his stand-in. Well, once it became clear that this character was kind of an idiot, his enthusiasm waned slightly. <laughs> but I have to say he was a very good sport about it and he remains a, a, a good friend of mine to this day. Uh, that's amazing. I would love to show a clip. Um, let me, this is a one woman production. So let me make sure I do it correctly. Okay, let's see. Is, is it showing? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So here we go has been eagerly awaiting your glorious return. I've made some big changes, too. Big Hollywood power dance. Solid blast. Ooh. And that's not all. Kerplunk. <laughs> Sexy Hollywood power boots. Move over Carrie Bradshaw. That's a Sex in the City reference. You know, I'd really like to get you booked on that. Is that still on? Goddammit. Sexy power boots. <laughs> uh, now that you're back in town, you tell me exactly what you want to do. TV show, movie, world comedy tour, and I'm going to take a real shot at getting it for you. Yeah. Uh, Chantrell, get me the uh, hidden big opportunities list, would you? <laughs> I bet they can buff that out. 
I'm sure they can. You know what it is? I just really want to reconnect with my community. You know, it's like, I don't even know who my neighbors are. Forgive my distraction. This is a $37,000 hand-blown Murano glass desk, so understandably I'm somewhat irked with myself. Yes, neighbors. A serendipitous meeting on a park bench. How do you do, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Is that your dog, sir? That's it. Human interaction. Yes, indeed. I'm going to make some calls. I love it. I love it. A neighborhood park bench. Bruce, you did it. Well, I confess I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about, but it seems as though you're happy with me, and that's what matters. Solutions everywhere. And by the way, I'm going to call these people. I'm going to say they delivered the desk that way. And how dare you, sir? Really? I mean, why should I pay for the buffing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That is so funny. Uh, So I want to know, you know, we have a lot of actors and comedians watching. So how much uh, was based in reality and how much did you add of your own uh, comedy? Uh, Was he this goofy or the real Bruce? Yes. Oh, not at all. Not at all. He's no. quite, I mean, he's no, he's quite serious, quite sober, very I mean, he's funny. He's a funny person, but he's intentionally funny. He's yes. not a, he's not a, he's not a fuck up. I can curse on this show, can I? Oh my I god, I'm a, co- I'm a comic. Are you serious? I have a Yes, please. He's not a fuck up at all as we made him out to be. He's he's a very uh, cogent, intelligent guy who's done very well for his clients. Um and he's he's funny, witty funny but he doesn't mess everything up like I did. Um, so that, well, the part that's real, that is does really exist, is that they have this kind of, uh, he and Maria have this kind of unusual relationship where they, they've been together as a, you know, working together as a team for quite a few years now. And they get mad at each other. They do things occasionally that annoy one another, but they, they have this kind of dogged um, dedication to one another. They will never abandon one another, never. You know, Maria has, is a, is open. She's struggled with mental illness her whole adult life. Um, and he's, not only was he completely understanding about that, but he actually kind of, there was a time when she was really in rough straits and she was living in Chicago and, you know, really, really not in good shape. And he kind of, uh, you know, flew in there and, 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 and kind of rescued her to, for want of a better word and you know got her kind of able to get got her the, 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 some appointments with people to get her the medication that she needed and kind of got her into a state where she could um function better again and uh, they have this real love for each other it's interesting it's a completely um you know uh uh agape love a non-erotic love but they really love each other and it's um it's nice to see something like that uh in in this day and age of, uh, you know, um, allegiances that are based on, you know, much more kind of temporary kind of uh, alliances based on what you've done for me lately. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like more old school manager client relationship. Yeah. And I think that works because uh, if you have a, ma- I even dated my manager, <laughs> if you have that love uh, for real, it, they take more interest in your career. Uh, now it's, it's, a really good friend of mine. She's my manager, and and it makes a huge difference. Do do you believe that? Did you ever actually have a relationship like that or similar with your manager? Uh, I have a rela- I have a love relationship with my manager, not a relationship where my manager fucks everything up. <laughs> no, I, I have a manager uh, called Amy Slamovitz who I adore, mm-hmm. but you know, in the earlier part of my career, 
um, I kind of didn't understand why people had managers. Uh, you know, because like 10% seems like a big cut to start off with for an agent. And then you have to pay an, another 10% or sometimes more uh, on top of that. So that seemed, so 20% seemed like a lot to me. And then I started noticing that uh, many of my friends who were doing really well all had managers. And um, I was actually here in LA. I was still living back in New York, but I was here in LA. This was 2011, I guess it was. And we were making... Uh, in a world like Bell's movie, yes, which I enjoyed uh, tremendously. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. But definitely, while I was on the set making that movie, my family, my wife and kids were still living back in New York, but mm -hmm. I came out here to California to do that movie. And um, I, uh, there was a woman in that movie who plays Lake's sister, um, Michaela Watkins, who mm -hmm. has become a, a dear friend of mine, a lovely, wonderful actress. And I was also on several other shows with her, a show that she starred in that uh, people may be familiar with called Casual. But anyway, mm -hmm. so Michaela was in that movie and we got to be good friends. And one day her manager uh, was came on the set to, you know, to be with her, uh, who was um, who is now my manager. Uh, so she, Amy Somovitz, my, uh, Michaela's manager, said to me, you know, I, I saw you in A Serious Man and a couple of other things, and I just, I have a, I think you're a terrific actor. And uh, I don't do much on the East Coast, I'm based out here, but if you ever come to LA, uh, I would really like to work with you. So uh, I took that to heart. And when, as soon as I moved out here, which is about eight, almost eight years ago, um, I became her client. And uh, I love her, uh, she's, a, she's a terrific, She's terrific at what she does and also a terrific person. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. And I'm very happy with my agents as well. Mm -hmm. But agents, uh, you know, my my agents are uh, Abrams, uh, now called A3, for many years called Abrams Artists. Yeah. Um, I've been with them for, Christ, 30 years. Long, oh, so wow. Long time. Uh, and they're great also. But managers um, do something slightly different. Um, I think most people understand. Uh, they plan for you based on kind of long-term thinking strategically, and they also understand your uh, your tastes and your reason for turning things down or wanting to do things. Now, many agents do too, um, but also they have, they have friends and uh, uh, influences in places that perhaps some agents don't. Um, so, you know, I, I, for me, it's been a very, very good thing, I must say. I really, I really am glad that I did that. And I don't mind paying the 20% at all um, because I've made so much more money than I would have otherwise. And also, you know, my career, uh, I'm, ex I'm an extremely lucky person. You know, I didn't have a, a real, I had a strange kind of trajectory, as I think you know. Yes. Um, I started out uh, wanting to be a so-called serious actor. I was went to Yale Drama School. I was mm -hmm. went to the Guthrie, which is a big theater out in Minnesota for a year. And then I was in Amadeus on Broadway and on a tour. Nice. And in the, in the process of <clears throat> doing Amadeus, I developed this unbelievably powerful stage fright, absolutely crippling stage fright, horrible. Wow. So much so that I didn't, I, it took every ounce of courage and discipline I had to get my ass to the theater every night and I hated it, hated it. Um, and at the end of it, and it wasn't because of the play, it was because of my own, you know, problems. At the end of it, I thought, Jesus, I've made this horrible mistake. You know, I said, I'm going to be an actor. And people said, oh, it's, you know, don't do it. It's too hard. I said, oh, I'll show you. And I went to Yale and I was on Broadway. And I couldn't stand it. So what am I going to do? So I had an agent who was, Harry Abrams was very big in the voiceover world at the time. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and they still are, uh, A3. But um, I said, well, I'd like to do voiceovers. So I started doing voiceovers. And this is when the voiceover world was entirely different. The business in those days was uh, dominated by about 150 people who did 90% of the work uh, instead of <laughs> well, the way it is now, which is kind of the other way around. 90% of the work is done by 90 million people. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I, I was in the voiceover uh, business as a, as a very active, you know, sort of leading particip participant mm -hmm. for 20 really good years. And I was very fortunate in that I made a lot of money relative to my, you know, my needs. I was a single guy with no big responsibilities. But it allowed me to uh, get very shy about acting. I didn't want to drag my raw meat out to, in the cold wind of judgment and have people reject me and tell me what they thought of me and all that kind of stuff. So I just did voiceovers. And I had a couple of casting directors that really liked me. Uh, one was a guy called Howard, Howard Fewer, um, Juliet Taylor, the brilliant casting director who direct who casting directed all of Woody's films and has you know many other Oscar winning films would have several Oscars if casting directors were were getting Oscars until you know very recently yeah. anyway um, so they kind of liked me some casting directors so they would just offer me stuff you know Woody has a psychiatrist at six days you want to do it uh, and I would do it if I wanted to but I didn't have the financial need to do it and I didn't have much of a an inner kind of drive to do it. It was just sort of a hobby, um, even though I had gone to Yale. So this continued for many years. And then I got married. I had children. My life changed vastly. Yeah. Um, and then there was a big kind of sea change in the voiceover world where they started wanting people with real sounding voices, which has never been me. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I sound like sort of like Darth Vader or something. I, I have a dramatic sounding voice. Um, anyway, that became very much not the thing that was wanted. And because I had been a, a rather, <clears throat> you know, noticeable player in that world, all of a sudden I was part of that old regime. So, you know, I, my income dwindled to nothing. And by this time I had two children, both diagnosed with autism and two houses, and it was really scary. So, uh, I had about a year's worth of money left before we would have had to sell the house and you know really make serious changes. And this friend of mine said, look, if money was not an, an issue, what would you like to do? What would you really like to do? I said, well, uh, if I could choose anything, I'd like to go back to writing and, and acting like I did years ago, but it's such a crapshoot. I mean, what am I gonna do? He said, well, why don't you try? So I did to no great uh, effect. I was on you know law and order like every other person yeah. who does a food demonstration in Bloomingdale's, you know, in New York uh, and stuff like that. But no, nothing really distinguished. And then one day I was sitting in, in a great deal of anxiety with my wife in Montauk with our kids where we lived and the phone rang and she answered it. And she said, uh, do you know somebody called Joel Cohen? And I do know an accountant called Joel Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> So, yeah. um, but I got on the phone and it was Joel Cohen and Joel and Ethan Cohen. And I knew the Cohens a little bit because I had gone to drama school with uh, Fran McDormand, Joel's wife and John Turturro. And I was new John Goodman. And I kind of knew people from their retinue. And I had, mm -hmm. I had auditioned many years prior for Barton Fink, the movie Barton Fink. Well, I didn't get the part. Uh, I placed, I came in second, according to uh, uh, Ethan Cohen. Um, but they remembered me from that. And they were screening footage for another movie for uh, Burn After Reading. And they were looking at some footage of Taya Leone. 
And I happened to be in the scene with Thea Leone. It was a Woody Allen movie they were looking at just to see if she was right for something. And they noticed me in this scene with Thea and they got the idea that I might be right for the role uh, that they were thinking of, which is the role of Cy Abelman in A Serious Man. So they, uh, we talked and they said, why don't you come into New York? And I went into New York and I read for them and they said, great, we're not gonna see anybody else. We definitely want you to do this, but we're not sure when we're gonna get to it because uh, we have to work on three movies kind of simultaneously. And one of them is Burn After Reading, which has Brad Pitt in it and uh, George Clooney. It's kind of a big star studded movie. So we have to do it based on the availability of those stars. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, uh, that's okay, I can wait. They, I said, I, you know, I, 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 I have this uh, goal in my mind. I wanna bring uh, the overweight pompous rabbi back to the center of American sexuality where I feel he belongs. And that should take me about a year. <laughs> um, so <laughs> they said, okay. So I thought, okay, well, I'll get to do this role. So like a long time passes, I don't hear anything. Like over a year passes, I think, oh God. This is what happens in show business. Some great thing comes along and the money falls out or somebody gets sick or somebody gets busted in the Me Too movement or something like that. Right, exactly. And it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, finally, after about a year and a half, um, they called. And I went to Minnesota and we made the movie and I had an absolutely joyous, fantastic time making it, loved making it, loved them, loved Michael Stuhlbarg and, and everybody else in that movie. And then I had to wait another a year for it to come out because it takes a year to post most films. So by that time I was really broke, <laughs> really genuinely broke. But then at the age of 52 or whatever I was, 52 I think, and then um, all of a sudden I was a celebrity with believe me, no uh, expectations of that at all, I, you know, shocked. And that's, I'm, you know, that's what, 13 years ago, 12, almost 13 years ago. Uh, and it's been great. It's been absolutely great. But I was shocked, you know. When you were at Yale, did you ever dream that you would be a celebrity? Ever? Um, you don't think that way. You're too busy. Um, you know, the, 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 what is demanded of you is is so uh, great. Um, I mean, I think some people might have thought that way, but I, I didn't think of it that way. Um, it was just, I just kind of wanted to be good. I wanted to be better and understand certain things that I didn't understand. It took me, it took me another, I don't know, 15, 20 years after I got out of Yale to really be any good I, in my view. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still, uh, I'm still getting it. I'm still learning stuff. I mean, I, I, as I've said, I, I to me, it's like poker acting. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can learn the rules in one afternoon, but to really master it takes a lifetime. <laughs> it's a long yes. time. I think in any art form, it, yeah. it, any any craft, anything, it takes, same with stand-up. I mean, you think, you know, okay, I reached this level, now I want to move to the next level. And I, you, there's always room for learning and improvement and, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, also, you know, it's it's so different today. When I was coming up, um, and, you know, if you had maybe two or three 12-minute sets, mm -hmm. you were cool for a year or two <laughs> because <laughs> everything, there wasn't all this overlapping of everything. You know, when I was coming up, not professionally, but learning about show business, when my dad was in show business and I was a kid, you know, if you got on Ed Sullivan, you were made. There was one show. There was only one show. 
And if you got on Ed Sullivan, or if you happened to be lucky enough to be on The Tonight Show and do well, yeah, you were made. That was it. You were in. <laughs> you that, yeah, that, those were different times. <laughs> now it's very, a completely very. different scenario. And I find it fascinating that you grew up with uh, your father being in the entertainment business, producer, Car 54. Yes. Uh, yes, and Sergeant Belko. Right. Like yeah, my dad was um my dad worked with a guy um called Nat Hyken, who was kind of like a pioneer of early television comedy. This was when television, believe it or not, was mostly done in New York in these years. Um and we lived in New York. And uh, he he did a bunch of shows with Nat Hyken, and then he also did he did a show called Let's Pretend, which was a kids show, wonderful show. So he was involved in radio and in the early days of TV. So I got exposed to it um, as a young kid, and we had a country house. We lived in Manhattan, and we had a country house in Fire Island, um, where there was a big showbiz kind of scene. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people that uh, went uh, Mel Brooks and uh, Burt Backrack. Uh, we're, we're all in this kind of hangout group that my parents were in. So we had many friends in that in that business. My father had a very close friend, a guy by the name of Kenneth Roberts, who was a famous announcer um, from, from radio and early television, whose son was Tony Roberts, the actor. So I have grown up knowing Tony Roberts my entire life. Wow. And when I was 13, uh, my dad took me to see Tony Roberts starring in, along with Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in a play on Broadway called Play It Again, Sam. And I went backstage and got to meet them, uh, which was a big deal to me. Uh, and then years later when I met Woody and started working with Woody, I reminded him, not that he remembered me, but you know. So I got, I got to see, I got to see uh, Woody and Diane Keaton uh, when we were all young. I mean, they weren't 13 like I was, but they were, we were all pretty young. Do you think that growing up in that environment really helped you decide to be an actor or like if you no. grown up, no, it's nothing to do with no, it? No, I never thought I would be an actor. I, ne okay. I never, yeah, I never, I always wanted to be, I started out wanting to be an archeologist. That was what I was interested in. Yeah. I've always mm -hmm. been interested in ancient, ancient cultures and stuff. And I love going to music. I didn't realize that archeologists have to stand outside in the heat and the dust all day where I'd be keeled over in 10 minutes now. No fun. But, Right. But it's fascinating to me. And then I wanted to be a writer for most of my early adult life. I wanted to be a writer and I went to college uh, kind of wanting to be a writer and trying to be a writer. And I had a friend who was a close friend of mine in high school, a guy named Andy Shea, who went to the same college that I did, he, although he arrived there before because he was a little older. So he used to do these kind of strange plays, some of which he would write himself, some of which his brother would write. And because we were friends, he asked me to be in his plays, which I did. And I went to hippie college. I went to Hampshire College where you could kind of do in those days pretty much whatever you wanted. So I enjoyed being in plays. And then people would see me and they'd ask me to be in other plays. And I really liked it. And it was interesting. And you got to meet girls. If you were a heterosexual fellow in the theater, you could, you know, you, you in those days was you were relatively in you know small small company of people Definitely. Um, uh, and uh, I enjoyed the whole I enjoyed it I enjoyed a lot about it but I never thought I'd do it as a profession and then the fourth year that I was in college uh, these two ladies came to the the, the the college that I went to Hampshire College is in a, what's called the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts and there's five colleges all within proximity to one another 
and they cooperate together. You can take courses or be in plays. If you're in any one of them, you can go. Uh, they they all mix curriculum and all that stuff. So these two women came to Smith College, which is a women's college. Uh, one was Kristen Linklater, the famous uh, uh, voice theoretician, and the other was Tina Packer, uh, famous Shakespearean um, director, kind of thinker, uh, MacArthur uh, Foundation award winner, brilliant woman. Wow. So um, they had this company, they were about to form this company called Shakespeare and Company in Western Massachusetts. And they asked me to be a member of it, which I did. And then I thought, yeah, this is, I do want to do this as a, for a living. How old were you when that happened? 21. 21. 21. And then uh, I realized I really needed to train more. I really wanted to learn more. So I only applied to Yale. I, I, at the time, you know, there were, there were maybe four or five or three, three or four really prominent drama schools at that time. Mm -hmm. um, there was Yale, there was Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, there was Juilliard, NYU was up there, and maybe one or two others. Um, but I only applied to Yale, and I thought, well, if I get into Yale, I'll go, and if I don't, I'll just try and be an actor. So I got in to Yale, uh, and I went to Yale, and Yale was a very interesting experience. It's a, it's a small school, and there were only uh, a total of 12 kids in my class. Actors. That was it? That's it, yeah. So, and some classes were bigger, like they might have 14, but never very big of, of actors. I mean, there were people that were directing students, there were people that were designers and so, so forth, but I mean, actors. And you had all your classes with all the same people um, for three years. <laughs> yeah, that's a little intense. <laughs> it is very intense. And by the, by the end of year three, you had, you know, you'd, you might've slept with a good quarter of them or, or, <laughs> or wanted to. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then you'd have arguments with others. It was very, you know, it was, you know, you had three. And you're, yeah, you were, you were a family at that point. Yes, yes, with all the attendant bullshit. Of being, you know, exactly. <laughs> some you never want to see again. Uh, yeah. So, um, right. Um, but it was, and, and Yale was, uh, there were some wonderful people at Yale, but most of them kind of blew through and didn't stay their, their entire lives. Most of the people that came to Yale that were the most influential to me were people who came from the world of the theater and, and movies and so on and stayed for a while, uh, but didn't make education their life's work. With some exceptions, there were some exceptions to that. Robert Brewstein, who was the dean when I arrived there, was very influential, his thinking and his kind of style of, of, of doing stuff. But I met some fantastic people at Yale, and many of the students were the most interesting and the most the most gifted, really. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my experience. Um, I was not a disciplined person. Really? No. So I got in trouble <laughs> frequently. Um, we had dance class five days a week for the first hour and a half of each day. I was not, this may shock you, but I was not considered extremely gifted. <laughs> the dance world. Yes. <laughs> uh, but um, I, used, I still had to, you know, try. Yeah. But sometimes I was a little uh, lazy. I'd come to class late and things, and that was not looked upon. Uh, uh, <laughs> that was yeah. not, not well tolerated. Uh, so I got in trouble. Um, but uh, there were some people who uh, liked what I did and acknowledged it, and that was nice. But I have, I have friends from that period of my life um, many, you know, uh, I met, I've mentioned some of them to you. Um, 
uh, a close friend of mine, Steve Hendrickson, wonderful actor, uh, Tony Shaloub, who you may know, uh, one terrific actor also, um, Eve Gordon, a classmate of mine, um, uh, David Allen Greer, uh, Reggie Cathy, terrific actor who unfortunately passed away very young a couple of years ago. Um, so many of those people are still among my, my closest friends. Um, I went to school at the same time as a, a huge a number of people that become giant stars. Uh, Fran McDormand, John Turturro, Rock Dutton, Angela Bassett, all uh, Tony Shalhoub, uh, you know, all within a year of me either way. So, um, you know, there was a lot of talented people. But it was very hard. It was very hard in, in some respects. And not everybody there was great, students or faculty either. <laughs> It happened. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm going to take a question from Dave. Uh, he wants to know, uh, Fred, please tell us about your experiences working on silk stockings and one life to live. Well, my experience on silk stockings was extremely limited. I'm, I, I, I did a lot of voiceover work. So um, my experience was I announced the beginning of the show. <laughs> That's all I did on silk stockings. <laughs> But I'm on every show because I'm in the very beginning of it. Um, uh, One Life to Live was the first really, my first real on-camera job mm -hmm. after drama school. That was very interesting. Um, soap operas are hard work. You have, especially One Life, uh, which is an hour show. They produce a one-hour show every day. Now, in most television, They, you have about eight days to put together a one-hour show as opposed to one day. So you really have to work at a, at a uh, very back-breaking kind of pace. And you have long bits of dialogue sometimes to memorize, and then you have to get up early and all that stuff. Um, I mean, that's always true in, in, in acting. You're always up at early and working late. But, but on a soap opera, it's particularly that way. Yeah. I had a I had a fun experience, although I was very nervous. I was very very nervous, and there was an actor on that show, a guy called Michael Storm, who played a character called Larry Wolak. Now this is you have to have this is the '80s, so if you're you know if you're not if you're a young person, you have no memory of this probably, but Larry Wolak, played by Michael Storm, was one of the male lead stars of One Life, and uh, he and I had a lot of scenes together, and. He had the ability to cross one eye. <laughs> he could cross his, his upstage eye. In other words, the camera's over here. He can cross this eye so that the camera can't see it. But if you're doing a scene with him, you see it. Oh, my God. I can't do it. I can't cross one eye. But, yeah, so I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be looking at him, you know, doing a scene, and his eyes would be going like this. But the camera <laughs> couldn't see it. So, and because I was so nervous, I was so easy to make laugh. And he, he, this he enjoyed. He wasn't, I don't, he wasn't cruel about it, but it, it got to be kind of a sport for him. Yeah, but it's got a little evil. Well, I mean, he, way, I mean he, had been, he had been doing that show for 16 years already. It was like a little, you know, tired of it. You know? And he, he was a good guy. But yeah. I, and I was, I was playing a Hispanic character on that show. I had to speak a smattering of Spanish, and I was supposed to be, the, 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 one of the storylines involved. <laughs> involved in adoption. And this couple that was childless was trying to adopt a baby from a mythical South American country called <laughs> San Gabriel, made up. Oh, I can't. <laughs> right? 
And I was supposed to be helping with this with this adoption. And in the I go back and forth to San Gabriel and then Landview, which is the town they made up town in Pennsylvania where this with you know, Landview. Anyway, so uh, one of the people who's involved in the adoption, we find out surreptitiously, is actually an evil woman. Her name is Astrid Collins, and we find out that she's a murderess. I find out she's a murderess. So I so they have these sting lines. Sting lines are what happen right before you go to a commercial. Yeah. Like the big, you know, the big, you know, I'm pregnant or I'm gay, and then and you see the person, and then you know it goes to black, and you go to a you know Tide commercial. Yeah. So I had one of these lines where I was supposed to say to Larry Wolek, Michael Storm, this guy who was always breaking me up. Astrid Collins is a murderess. With that dramatic, you know, pause. I, so I couldn't do it. Every time, I must have tried to do it thirty times. It was completely uh, humiliating. I couldn't get the Astrid. I thought it was, the line was so dumb. It was so. Yeah, you just like yeah. You Astrid can't even. Astrid Collins Yeah. And I could hear them talking in the control. I'm like, like, get, like, you know, like they're gonna fire me. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, it was not good. But anyway, I, I anyway I got I got through it. So that's good. Uh, you're you're great because I don't know how how you did it, but uh, it's it's hard when you're on set and you start laughing. I don't know what it is. It's like a giggle roll, and you can't stop. Well, there's pressure. Oh, I mean, eventually. Yeah. I mean, what you learn as an actor is whatever you're feeling, you have to you you never fight what you're feeling. You just let it happen. You let it go. You got to go through it. You know that's all. Yeah, but how do you how do you stop that? Like you have to go through it. But like you just ride the wave of the feeling and then go on the other side and like okay, I can do it now. Yeah, you let it be there and you laugh if you have to laugh and if you you try. I mean, you always. I mean, there's a whole conversation about acting. But yeah. As you know, the way I feel about acting is that it's always me underneath. Mm -hmm wearing a coat and the coat can be an entirely different way of relating to reality thinking differently about anything about women about work resenting certain people but it's still a coat and it still has to be me underneath because i have to be there in real time to react to the other person and to the situation so i have a prepared thing what's interesting one of the many interesting things about acting is i have a prepared thing that i've made up in my hotel room or my house about how i want to play the character and I bring that, but I also have to be awake to whatever it is I'm getting back. And I have to be responding in the moment to that as, as best I can, as really as I can. You know, it's like pretending the way kids do, but you, but you pretend really giving the character the most intelligence, the most, you don't want to ever be looking down at the character. You want him to be as real and as resourceful and as human as he can, can be possibly. My long-winded answer to your question. No, I love it. I love, I love the coat thing. That's just stuck in my head. That was great because in comedy, I feel the same way. It's like you're when you do stand-up, you're you. Uh, you have the coat of exaggeration a little bit on you, you know. So you have a little bit of a different take, but you're, it's still you. So when, with acting, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like, I mean, I, I remember, I remember when I was when I had a bunch of friends that were comedians, like just starting out. This was maybe 30 years ago, the mantra was, and I think it still is to many people, you have to develop you. In other words, you have to be you, but learn how to put that you on stage and learn how to be that you in front of people and how to make, you know, how to utilize what's, pair away what is not funny or what, what doesn't pertain to what you're doing, but still be genuine 
because they will tire of a character. Right. You know, there were in the olden days of comedy, people like Bill Dana or who did Char Charlie Weaver, people would do characters that were very obviously characters, Minnie Pearl, um, but the thinking was that the audience tires of a character um, if it's not real. Exactly, and it can be like, I want note. Yeah. Yeah. And then it got sharpened, in my view, with certain people like Richard Pryor or oh, Maria, who mm -hmm. I, 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 these people are in the absolute top tier of stand-up comedy yes. because they use what's real to them, mm -hmm. they turn it completely out, the, the, all the nastiest, most weird, most frightening, most horrible parts of their lives. They turn them out and they have this gift, this kind of light touch so that it becomes universal and funny. Exactly. And uh, that's really hard. It's it really is. hard. And, and, it, and I think a lot of it is just, you know, it's just kind of the way you are. I mean, people are born to, some people are born good at certain things. Absolutely. Do you think uh, stand-up is more, you know, more vulnerable in stand-up than acting? Well, I think it depends on the kind of person you start out being. But I think there's much, I think it's much harder to hide effectively in stand-up. Yes. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> yeah, because it's just you and them. But I also think that's why all the metaphors are so violent. You know, that's why I killed, I slayed, I destroyed. Um, They're very violent. You're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, because... Um, I bombed. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so... Well, let's be honest. P performers in general are not an extremely healthy population to start off with. <laughs> Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, people people who need strangers to make them feel that they're okay about themselves, that you're not starting up with yeah. everybody. I'm not telling like, you. Look at, me, mommy, look at me. Yeah. yeah. Look at me, mommy. Look at me, daddy. I think it's right it has to do with our childhood. No doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. And at the same time, there is a nobility to doing an art well, because it makes people examine humanity, which is beautiful and necessary. Um, but you're not necessarily the healthiest. And I think people that want to be comedians, um, they want to be adored in a spotlight alone. And if they don't get it, if it's not, you know, great, it can be very punishing. Yes, and devastating. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I think you have to. You, I think you have to have a certain. I mean, to be any kind of a performer, you have to have a certain kind of balls where you say, "Look, I'm worth looking at." Oh but my to god! To be a yeah. comedian, it's especially that way. And you know, I don't like I like you know it. I I will cop people's lines that are funny. You know, like for example, when people ask me like, "What was my school experience like?" Um, I usually say, well, I went to a, a special school for emotionally disturbed teachers. That's a Woody Allen joke. It's an old Woody Allen joke, but it's a great joke. Yes. Um, but I don't get, I don't get, um, you know, blackballed for for copying that joke. Right. If I were a comedian, and that's a 20, 30 year old joke. If I were a comedian, I would. 100%. And rightly. Rightly. Of course. Um, and, and there are comedians, we all know, I'm not going to name them, but there are comedians who are infamous. Yes. <laughs> for, uh, you know, uh, 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 taking other people's uh, material. 
Yes. Now, in the olden days, comedians didn't write their own material. They had people writing, oh, right? Yeah. Wow. Jack Benny, Bob Hope, they had they all they didn't write anything. They had all their own stuff written for them. Really? All of it? Yes. I mean, there I'm sure there were some that wrote, but the really big ones, the famous ones that everybody knows about, Jack Benny, WC Fields, um, um uh uh Bob Hope, all had written material. They had they had staffs of writers. Staffs of writers. That's how all the funny guys started. Larry Gelbart and Woody Allen were all comedy writers. They wrote for other people. They wrote for Sid Caesar. Right. Oh, my God. Yes. Right. Yeah. So it was a different world. Today, I think to be thought of as, re as a real comedian, you have to write your own stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and from a place of truth also. Yeah. 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 If, if somebody, you know, if somebody comes out and does a, a routine and you know the routine is you know what what do we think of that airline food? It's horrible. You know my wife talks so much, and she, I mean it, 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 it's so those tropes. We don't have those tropes anymore, but we have others. We have we now have tropes, like a woman comes out and says, you know, I'm such a slut that that's our current one of our current tropes, or or you know uh, I'm 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 so fat and a slob, but I don't care. That's another common trope. Another. Yeah. You know, there's a million, you know, but they, they, it's, you hear the same stuff over and over and over. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's important also as, as a comedian and as an actor to come from a place, a deep place, and to know your flaws, to know your vulnerabilities, to know all of that. And and like you said, you know, Maria is somebody that does that. She's so vulnerable. and she. Yeah, but you also have to be funny about it. That's the thing. <laughs> Be funny, exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that's the hard part. I can tell. I can. I'm not. I'm not afraid to expose, you know, parts of myself that are weird or that are ugly or that are. But I'm occasionally funny about it. But you know, some people are like really funny about it all the time, like Maria. Yes. You oh, know, I agree. She's, she's brilliant, amazing. genius. Um, I want to talk about your character in a world, and I want to show a clip first because uh, it's. Um, about narcissism, and I'm always um, fascinated with that topic. Not, let's see, I'm a one woman production. Give me one second. Okay, here it is. So let's play it and then we'll talk about it. Is it showing? Yes. Okay, thank you. Me is going to be moving in, sweetheart. You're going to have to find another place to live now. What? She's 26. She's 30. That's my age. You're 31 now. Okay, barely. Look, she's an adult. That's the point. She collects rainbow magnets. And she likes For me. the wrong reasons. Well, they're right enough for me. I'm appalled, Dad. I'm well, appalled. I'm feeling happy for the first time in quite a while. You know what? I think this is just a validation thing. I do. I think you should start spinning again. I've been thinking about it. Karen, and I, I love you, but let me tell you something. And, and you You're not going to be able to talk me out of this, okay? Jamie printed me out an article from Yahoo Health. It was all about enabling. And I realized at that point, I cannot continue to support your emotional handicap. You know, my father used to say to me, you're a good kid. But as long as I'm around, you'll never be as good as me. Well, this award sure does make me feel pretty good. And so tonight, I'd like to dedicate this award to my daughters, of whom I'm very proud. 
So this is a character who is competing with his own daughters and really is very, very selfish. He's a total narcissist. And, you know, narcissists now are in, right? Everybody, yes. everybody a narcissist. You're a narc. You're taking a selfie. Yeah, there's a whole, I, I, there's, a, yeah. you get, there's like pages and pages on, on Reddit <laughs> about narcissism and, you know, there's know. all support groups and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's the so, uh, diagnosis du jour for sure. Yeah, but did you have experiences with narcissistic? Um, no, I've never met anyone narcissistic. Have you? Only in movies. Never. never. Only yeah. in movies. Exactly. Uh, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, I have some traits uh, along those lines myself. We all uh, do, to a certain extent, I think. I, uh, in my immediate parentage, there were mm -hmm. some rather outstanding figures also. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're all dead now. Uh, but uh, I, I, I had one parent who was particularly that way. Yep, same here. Um, so uh, yes, it was familiar to me. And you know, it's funny when that movie came out. I read, I read all the things. It used to be that on uh, IMDb, people were allowed to comment about movies and performances. They, they got <laughs> there were too many complaints about how fat people were, how ugly they were. So they stopped, they stopped allowing people to comment publicly. But in early days of IMDb, people would say things, and people about that movie said, I can't believe any father would be that much of a jerk that he would actually be threatened by his own daughter. To me, that was so crazy. I've met a million people like that. Yes, Especially show business. Especially yeah. show business. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, for me, I could easily imagine that somebody would be so fragile, his ego would be so fragile that the thought of his daughter competing with him for a big job would be absolutely anathema, would be absolutely unbearable. Um, what was so great about that part, though, was the complexity of that character. He was full of himself. He was, you know, full of bluster and all that. But obviously, he had feet of clay. You know, he didn't have a lot of faith in himself, obviously. And he also, in his screwy way, he actually loved his daughter. In oh, his absolutely. Yeah. So all those things were going on within him, which made that character so interesting to play. You know, you're always, as an actor, interested in the uh, parts of the characters that you play that are um, that that are the opposites of the of the way that people think of them in general. Mm -hmm. uh, that are uh, that are inconsistent with their general. You know, you look for in heroic characters what is what is cruel and you look for in cruel or evil characters what is heroic absolutely yeah that's so true um so that that was a great experience and lake uh i never knew lake has now also become my dear friend um very talented you know writer director actor yes um, and also michaela who played her sister in that film that's who i was mentioned to you before uh, and several other people from that film i'm still very good friends with ken marino and rob cordry and 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 several other people um, so that was a, a really deeply enjoyable experience. And what was fun for me also was that I got to act scenes where he, like the last scene that you saw at the awards dinner, yeah, where he actually kind of realizes mm -hmm. what he's done. And he has some, some painful reexamination of his own behavior and some redemption, although it's not complete, just like of in real life. He's going to go back to being himself. Yeah, yeah, but he but the fact that he has a little bit of um a conscience, right? Yeah, and realizes to some extent that he's done something bad. Yeah. 
So that was interesting to play. The character was both funny because he's so pompous, but also, you know, he has some redemption in the story. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think anybody is 100% evil. You know, it, it's, there's different nuances to people. And 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 the way you played that character, it was just brilliant. I love the crying scene, by the way. Thank you. That well, was so great. The woman who played my girlfriend in that, Alex Holden, um, is a. I just uh, adore her. She's a terrific actress and terrific person. And she had the kind of hard job in that film not hard job but you know interesting job i guess because um she's portrayed you know as a kind of a bimbo for much of the film and then in the end she's the one who says listen you schmuck exactly yeah don't you see don't you see what you're doing and 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 you're not gonna you're not gonna get to to play with my nose my beautiful nose or any other parts of me that you like if you persist in this she has to actually like make him uh, confront his own his own um, foolishness and selfishness. Absolutely. And she, I thought she was. I thought she did it beautifully. You know, and it was very. It's, of course, when you're playing scenes with people, when they're good, um, you know, you ha you ha you're made to rise to that. And that's always you know, very happy discovery when that happens. Yeah, and I love that when you were at your weakest and crying and being a crybaby, then your character, then she got all macho all of a sudden, like, listen. Yeah. yeah. And then she had, like, the biggest heart of everybody. Yeah. I love, I loved her character, for sure. It was yeah, great. when I read that script, um, I, I, just as a piece of writing, it was so good. I loved the scene. When, I remember reading it. You know, I didn't know Lake at all. And I got a call from my agent. I was living out in Long Island. It was a kind of a long schlep into New York to, to go see my agent. But he said, uh, do you know Lake Bell? I said, no. He said, well, she's an actress. And da, da, da. She wrote a script, and she left it here with me for you with a note, handwritten note. So you got to come pick it up. So I went in, and it was a beautiful note saying, you know, I wrote this script. It's my this piece that I, this one piece. Everybody has a one great story they want to tell. This is mine. And I just think you'd be so great in this. And I, and I, and I, Please consider it, you know, please read it and consider this part. And it was, and I did. And I remember when I read it, there's a scene in the movie after she's won the, uh, this, this, this hotly pursued account of doing these Amazon games movie. She's going to do all these Amazon games trailers. And she's so chuffed about it. And the woman who's made the decision to hire her um, comes into the bathroom uh, and and she has a little scene where she, where she, where, and 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 uh, it's played beautifully. Um, oh God, I can't think of her name. Uh, Gina Davis does Gina it Davis, yeah. wonderfully. And so Gina, da so she's going to thank Gina Davis, and she says something like, "Well, you know, I, I'm sure, I, you know, I know the best best woman got the job, you know, best best." And Gina Davis says, um, "Look, uh, you weren't the best person. You know, honestly, that was there were other people who were better than you. It's just important to me that women have this voice." That was such a great piece of writing because you always expect the virtue to be rewarded in movies, like you know, finally the guy wins or the girl wins, and you know. But here was a great, great example of good writing, mm -hmm. where she finds out that it's not her talent that wins. You know, so that 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 um, that whole thing I thought was beautiful. I see there's all these questions here. Fred, have you ever been starstruck? Oh wow, yeah. Where is it? Have you ever? That's the last question. Oh, Jennifer Anna. Oh, oh, Jennifer. Yeah, there's so many. And I've yes. got to pull them up here, right here. Fred, have you ever been starstruck? Twice That's in my life that I can remember, or three times, actually. 
The very first time was on the very first movie I was ever in, which is a now largely forgotten movie called Lovesick, starring Dudley Moore. And in that movie, I played a psychiatrist. I had a tiny little role as a psychiatrist. But it so happened that that movie also starred Alec Guinness, or Alec Guinness, mm -hmm. who was a big hero of mine, big acting hero of mine. So I actually got to be in a movie with Alec Guinness. You know, and this is this is post-Star Wars and everything. He's a gigantic star and, and you know, famous storied actor. And I was just starting out. So after we were done shooting the day, and it was the end of the day, everybody was tired, you know, I said, Sir Alec, uh, I, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but you're, you're sort of a personal hero of mine. And I just wanted to ask if you had have any advice um, for a young person uh, like me just starting out in show business. And he thought for a moment, he said, Yes, my advice regarding show business is don't get any on you. <laughs> That's great. And that has remained in my mind. That, But getting to work with him, I was really starstruck because I thought he was great. Uh, another time was the first time I ever did to do a, had to do a scene with Robert De Niro. Um, and I've been in several things with him now and know him, you know, Somewhat personally, a little bit personally, um, but it was uh, it was for a movie called The Mission oh. by Roland Jaffe, and I actually just voiced over somebody's part in that movie. Uh, the, the, a guy did uh, did this played the villain in that movie, and David Putnam, who at the time was head of Columbia Pictures, didn't like the, this guy's performance, so I dubbed this guy's entire performance. Wow. So I did some of, some of it with Robert, Robert Gennaro, and that was a big deal for me because I had recently seen fairly recently seen um, uh, Raging Bull, which kind of changed my whole uh, thinking about acting, that movie, you know. Uh, and then more recently, I did a film called uh, Get On Up uh, about the life of James Brown. Um, uh, about, I guess this was about maybe five or six years ago. Uh, and um, in the course of, and that movie was produced uh, by Mick Jagger's company. Ooh. Mick Jagger. Yes. Right. Yes. So Mick Jagger, um, came, we were shooting the movie in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So Mick Jagger came to town and he mm -hmm. had a series of little dinners at this restaurant. The lady was doing all the, all the uh, uh, cooking for the movie, had this beautiful little restaurant. So he had a bunch of people over to this restaurant to ha hang out and talk. Uh, and I was sitting at a table with Mick Jagger, like I'm sitting talking to you. Oh my God. <laughs> and he was, is, in spite of being a gigantic, you know, world famous celebrity superstar, or whatever you want to call him, uh, I was a big Rolling Stones guy growing up, and I, he was a big hero, you know, to me and everything. But he was very, although he'd been in the movie business for a while, he was rather, um, rather diffident about it. And, very polite about it and asked other people as if they knew more than he did. So here I was talking about movies. Mick Jagger is like asking me questions about like movies. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. So, and that was, that, that was like mind bending to be sitting at a table with Mick Jagger and just chatting about movies. That is amazing. So what was the third time? Three times you were Star Trek? Yeah, there was three. There was the first one was Alec oh, Guinness. Yeah. The second was Robert Nero. Not, not good at math. Not good at math. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> I'm so happy you're good at math. Uh, here's another question. It's going to cover our faces because it's super big. 
Uh, I know each presents different challenges, but what do you consider more challenging, writing or acting? I think writing would be extremely difficult because the writing can make or break a show or movie, just my opinion. Hmm, that's a good question. I, I share Joe's opinion. I, I agree with Joe. Um, they're different talents, but to me, I still write, mm -hmm. but I find writing extremely difficult. Yeah. Especially dramatic writing, which is the kind of writing that I do. And I'm, you know, I try and write movies and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it very, very tough. And you're all alone. Exactly. You know, um, I, my life is odd because I spend part of my life writing where I'm sitting in front of this computer like for six hours a day or more than that. And then, you know, I can go off and have dinner and I have my kids or my friends, you know, but I spend a lot of my life just alone. And uh, when you make movies mm -hmm. or TV shows, you're thrown up against people. You can't help it. That's right. why that's why people keep getting COVID. And these sets keep getting shut down. You, 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 there's no way to do it where you're not physically and psychologically intimate with other people. So for a person like me, who tends to be solitary, who tends to be rather lonely, mm -hmm. um, I love making movies. One of the reasons I love it is because you get intimately friendly with people and you're and you're with them all day long you know and you find and you know you're sitting and you 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 talk about your life you talk about your kids you talk about your girlfriends boyfriends whatever your parents everything you know your experiences your other directors all that so i love that part of it you know that you get close to people um and when i'm writing especially things over a long period of time uh it's very very tough and it's very hard to write to write well, dramatically, you, it's so pared down. It you have to. It takes this unbelievable kind of you know. All writing is, you strip down, you strip down, you strip down, you strip down. But dramatic writing, particularly, and it's it's. I find it really hard. I like having written. I don't like writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, occasionally you have a good day and you think, oh, that's you know, you look over it and you think it was great. But um, acting generally is enjoyable. Yes. Really enjoyable. And even when it's hard, you get to put it in your body. The fact that it's physical, you get to get it out of you, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Have you ever had a writing partner? Have you ever tried that? I'm sure you have, but. Uh, not for many, many, many years. And actually, I've been working on a project for a long time. And I wanted some help on it. It's, a, it's a, something that I wrote as a feature. And then my manager uh, <laughs> looked at it and liked it, and she said, uh, "Well, listen, uh, if you if you ever get, you know if you want to do it, write it and direct it yourself as a feature. Uh, so you're gonna you're gonna spend once you finish writing, you spend two years getting, trying to get the money for it. Then if you're really lucky, um, you're gonna get it in Sundance, and you know maybe you'll have the hot film at Sundance. So you'll be the big happy director. You'll be seventy years old. <laughs> you won't make any money between now and then." Right. Yeah, I'll forget it. <laughs> so, right. So she said, if you write it for television, and the quality of television now is there's not a big gap like there used to be between movies and television. They're all in quality quite similar. You can write something long form, right, and go into uh, characters in a, in more depth and and situations in more depth, and still have it be the same story, mm -hmm. and you can have some money to show for it also, and you know, and have something at the end of it. Uh, but she said, don't have anybody who's a co-creator. Once you have the show sold, 
then you hire a writer. Otherwise, you owe 50% of everything all the way along. That is true. Yes. Very smart. So, well, she she wasn't doing that because she was greedy. She was doing that because she knows what it's how it works, you know, how it actually yeah. works. So if the show does ever wind up getting sold, I will then have writers that will, you know, be the writers on the show, but they won't be the, the, the creators of the show. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, here's another question from Jennifer. My friend Adam Murray is a comedian and has been in small parts in shows and a small part in a movie. What's your advice for him to be in a big role? To get a big role. Be good in the small roles. <laughs> uh, I know that's not very sage advice, but it's it's about the best uh, I can come up with. Um, you know, everybody wants to know uh, the magic secret. Um, unfortunately, the magic secret is, as Steve Martin said, like people think, uh, how do I get an agent or how do I get to the right cocktail parties or any of that kind of stuff where all that shit doesn't matter. You have to be so good that they, people cannot ignore you. You have to do a scene, and when you finish with it, they have to go, wow, that girl is good. Mm -hmm. That guy is good. So how do you do that? Good question. <laughs> good question. Yeah, how do you do that? Well, here's my answer to that. How would you learn to do anything else well? How would you learn to play the piano well, or play the guitar, or make pottery? Do it. Practice. Well, first of all, look at people's work who you think who do that to you, right? Yeah. What comedian do you see or actor? And you go, man, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a fucking kick-ass actor. I'll never be that good. I'm already 30 years older than he was when he died. I'll never be that good. What did he do that was so good? What about him was so good? And some of it I can put into words. And some of it is just a quality that people have. Right. Right. But I know part of it I can put into words. And I'm never going to be the kind of actor that he was because we're mm -hmm. real different. But what can I learn from watching him? What can I learn from watching Marlon Brando when Marlon Brando was good, not when he became this you know, copy of Marlon Brando that he got to be later on in life? Mm -hmm. Watch performances that are really good. Not to copy them, but to say to yourself, what is that guy or girl doing that is so that makes me want to be with them, know them, understand them, experience them? That's the first thing. Absolutely. I agree. Then, what are the problems that I personally have, my inner mechanics present to achieving that? Because everybody has areas that they're naturally good at and things that they're not naturally good at. So what are the things that I need to prepare in myself to get myself to be better? The answer to succeeding is to get better at it. Nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear, well, I got to get the right age. I know, you know, in the voiceover world, it's like so much of that. So, well, how do I get a how do I get a good agent? And how do I get myself? And how do how do I how do I get a manager? And how do I get the right headshots? All that shit is so unimportant. Headshots don't fucking matter. I don't have a headshot. I've been in this business forty years. I don't have a headshot. That picture that you that you used of me is not a headshot. That was taken at an event. Where I'm sitting wearing a tie. Yeah. Like being all like sexy and all that. I'm just <laughs> at a party, right? Yeah. Yeah. Big stars don't have headshots. 
absolutely. I understand why people think they need headshots to, you know, to, so that people associate a name with a face and a, and a resume, mm -hmm. but headshots don't get people stardom or even jobs. I agree. And it never ends studying other people and, and getting better. It never ends. If, and if by the way, don't just, don't just study actors, study people on the bus, people you work with. Well, as an actor, absolutely. I mean, why? Here, here's a great question that, that fascinates me about acting. Mm -hmm. Very few people set out to be evil, in my experience. Mm -hmm. I think Donald Trump, in all of his horribleness, did mm -hmm. not get up and say, how am I going to fuck up the world today? <laughs> that is so true, yeah. He, even he, believed partway, hey, man, if only people would listen to me, Mm -hmm. If I were king, the world would swing. I know how things should be, you know? So how do people tell themselves, and people can tell themselves black is white, and they believe it. Absolutely. Right? Even yeah. smart people. Yeah, even murderers, they believe it. I take a walk uh, with my kids in my, I live in, in Sherman Oaks, which is a, which is a boring suburb in, in Los Angeles, for people who don't know, and in, in, the, in the storied uh, San Fernando Valley. And I take a walk around my neighborhood with my kids just to get out of the house in COVID, you know, like you want to get a little fresh air. So today we took a walk as we always do. And we always put on, even though I've had a COVID vaccination, one COVID vaccination, I have to have another. We all put on masks and gloves, even gloves, because there's so many people sick around here. And we, if I get it, I'll die for real. I've had oh. five friends dead of this already. Five, no, no oh, job. Five oh, friends. Anyway, we take a walk. My, my kids and me, right? And we just a walk a mile. It's a short walk. Today, we saw 16 people without masks, even though it's illegal to not wear a mask where I live. It's not, it's not a request. It's legal. It's the law. You must wear a mask. And I must have seen 50 cars in front of three houses on the street where I live, people having Super Bowl parties. Super Bowl parties. Oh, yeah. This what is, is the one thing they told you? The one thing. Don't have a Super Bowl party. That's right. Being around other people is the main thing. Listen, I, I, people have different opinions. I understand that. But there are certain things where one of the real tragedies of social media is that people believe that anybody who has a megaphone has an equal shot at being correct. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's, there's such a thing as informed opinion. When you read the New York Times, it's not the same as reading, I don't know, some some guy's thing that he's writing from his basement. Oh, you know, or like a meme on Facebook. Right, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. There are some sources where they actually make sure what they say is true before they publish it. They have to. So people don't understand that. So what, my point in bringing this up is, how do people tell themselves, eh, it's not going to happen to me? Or, I don't care. Fuck everybody else. I don't care. What do I care? Or, oh, this is all. I've, I, <laughs> I, was, I looked at this thing on YouTube. It was um, uh, uh, a, qu a question and answer thing from CNN, CNN where um, uh, Jake Tapper was asking questions from Bill Gates about when is this going to be over? Mm -hmm. And Bill Gates, as you probably know, has devoted the whole latter part of his life 
to the, the, the public good through improving public health all over the world. Here's a guy who has so much fucking money, he doesn't have to have to worry about money in the least. He's got he can spend a million dollars every day. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't have to worry about money, right? He doesn't worry about anything that that way. He spent his life giving away money and trying to make trying to cure AIDS. Right? He doesn't have any reason to do that. He just wants to do it. He feels like he should do it. Right? Yeah. So he answers the question that Jake Tepper asks. He says, well, it depends. You know, it's going to get better here in America probably by the end of the summer. People will notice it's going to get better. But in a lot of the developing world, it's going to take years. It's not going to get – and that's going to affect us because economically we're all – you know, he gives a very thoughtful, intelligent answer. Mm -hmm. And then there's 4,000 people saying Bill Gates is responsible for this. He came up with COVID at Microsoft so that we would all die so he could have all the money in the world. And he's conspired with – it's insanity. People want to believe all this crazy bullshit. Oh, so know. the reason I bring this all up is how do people tell themselves that all this stuff is true? They believe it. Mm -hmm. So that's what's so interesting. One of the things that's so interesting about being an actor is how do people get from my life is hard. Mm -hmm. I don't like my job. I don't think I'm going to do well in this world. Two, this is all a plot by Jews in spaceships aiming lasers at the California forests or whatever. You know, yeah. how did we get there? That's really interesting to me. Well, I think my personal opinion is that with social media, with the algorithms, they see what you're interested in and people that are interested in uh, conspiracy theories, they will feed their YouTube and Facebook and everything else with that narrative. You're but, right, but, but my question is why, do, see, people, people would rather believe that, so, I think it's too frightening to imagine that nobody's controlling things, that things are happening. <laughs> so they would rather believe there's an evil conspiracy controlling everything, do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, they probably grew up with narcissistic abusers. So it's like, what? Nobody's controlling and trying to kill me or damage me? What? Yeah, that's probably I, what happened. Those yeah. are the ones who are leaving it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, anyway, that, that I, 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 I've gone far afield, but you understand what I'm saying. No, I totally understand what you're saying. And it, it, to me, I have my whole, I analyzed the whole thing since it all started. Because what I did, I started... Uh, Googling like conspiracy theories. And then I Googled the opposite. And, and it was every time I Googled something or I put, you know, watch videos on YouTube, they would feed me that narrative. So I think that now we're being kind of like brainwashed uh, in a different way that we were before. Before it was just one TV commercials, buy this, buy that. Now it's like uh, QAnon, you know, uh, Trump is right. Or I think Trump funded QAnon. That's my personal theory. <laughs> That's my personal theory after analyzing the whole thing. And, and so I think we're being brainwashed and we're being fed that narrative. So it's it's like this. And, and it's whatever you want to believe, they will feed it to you. And repetition will actually make you believe things. So if you watch 10 videos about Bill Gates trying to kill us, you're going to be like, he's trying to kill us. Well, there's a very famous quote from... I. I it's a famous quote, so famous I can't remember who said it. It's somebody in Hitler's. Uh, I can't remember if it was Hitler or if it's or, or if it's one of his henchmen said that if the lie is big enough and you repeat it often enough, people will ultimately buy it. They'll ultimately yep. believe it. A hundred percent. I think there's truth to that. And also, you know, the way social media works, 
um, whatever camp you're in gets reinforced all the time. You tend to only hang with people that hear, feel the way you do, and you hear repeated and all that kind of stuff. So it's true that we have this this odd kind of broken up society. I used to. It's funny. I understand why people feel disenfranchised. I do understand that. You know, yeah. when I was growing up, it, you could have one person working, one one family member working, and you could have a nice car a reasonably nice house, go out to eat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you could, that person didn't have to even be, have a college education. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were a union worker in the automobile business, automobile you know, plants, you had a good enough living that you could support a whole family without ever having finished high school. Wow. So when that all changed, mm-hmm. you know, and all those play and when American industry dropped dead, essentially, you know, all, all, all those heavy industries, coal and gas and all that went to other countries and manufacturing. Um, a lot of people who, who, who had work didn't have a way to make a living and they were not able to reeducate themselves into fields where they would be needed. And they felt rightly kind of left behind. So I understand that, that bad feeling. But then, you know, then the problem became, oh, well, the problem is that, you know, people from Mexico want to take my job or uh, we have a black guy who's president. You know, in other words, there had to be there had to be a a, a Pasco lamb. There had to be somebody that you could point your finger at and say, it's that guy. Yeah. Not, you know, I couldn't keep up with the with the times changing, which is not easy. Not easy. But it's doable. It's doable, and really, you have no choice if you want to. That's the problem: is you kind of have to. You don't. You know, nobody likes change. No, nobody. It's a new reality. Sometimes we're faced with a new reality in life, and we have two choices: we can cry ourselves to misery and failure, or we can just like be okay. This is my new reality. How can I make this work? And with me, like I feel like, well, I just, I just finally figured out how to, how to, how to do the last one. You know what I mean? I just figured it out, and now they're changing it all. You know? Oh yeah, I know. But, but that's yeah. the way. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Everything changes really quickly. Uh, even like apps that you use, like no, you can do this, and you got to do this in social media, and you got to keep up with that, and it takes time. That's my only issue that it takes time. Yeah. It's not hard to learn. It's just very time consuming. It's exhausting. Well, it's being your own boss in anything is it sounds great because you think, well, I don't have to, you know, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to listen to anybody else. But in fact, it's a lot of work. It's hard. You know, people used to not be able to do their own auditions. Like, you know, you ha- you went to a place and a guy would be there with a camera and he would film your audition for exactly. you. Now, no. people are sitting in front of a, a computer, but you got to get your hair right and the lighting and you got to keep doing it and edit it because you don't like it. You know, so it becomes it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah, the first the first time I had my little intern come here, and it took us like a couple hours because it was like a shoot this uh, full body and then half body and then like it's like the face and the eyes and the nose. I was like, damn. Do you have an intern? <laughs> well, <laughs> an intern. Yeah. Does that mean a boyfriend? What is it? Or just a, what is it? Oh, no. a, a dog? What is it? A dog. <laughs> yes. Very very gifted dog, by the way, and he keeps up with the changes too, very quickly. Excellent. Yeah, he's very wise, very wise dog. Uh, so yeah, it takes it takes forever. It's like I'm doing the casting director's job now. Yeah, but you got to figure it out, or else you know, it's, like a lot of people I see, they complain. Oh my god, I have to do my own. It's like learn how to do it. Shut up and learn it. You know. Listen, it's you don't have a choice anymore. No, <laughs> it's like. 
That's the way it is. And surround yourself with younger people that they can tell you how to do this shit. That's very important. So when you say younger people, do you mean like teenagers or no, like millennials? <laughs> they know what's up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they teach you how to do social media. I, I have all my team, quote unquote, is millennials. So my manager's a millennial. Uh, the girl that helps me with social media, my intern, my doggy. Now, how, now, just so I get this straight, what is the maximum age that a millennial can be? I think like 40. Is that a millennial or a, a postmenopausal? <laughs> I don't know. Let me see. I think 40, late 30s. Think 40 is too old to be a No, late 30s. Okay, let me out. Now I'm going to Google it. Now you got me thinking millennials. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't know where, what's, what the cutoff is. I'll tell you in a second. 1981 to 1996. Yeah, 39. Yeah, they're growing Born. up. Millennials, they're getting older like we are. What do you mean like we are? <laughs> older. <laughs> Listen, I, I was very sharp. I, I got bald and fat at a young age. Oh. Uh, I made the wise career decision of getting bald and fat in the 1980s so that now I don't look so different. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, you know, I do a body positivity podcast and, um, and yeah, you, you, I, I heard some interviews. I, I had the same issue, like weight up and down, going up and down. Do, do you, I, I heard that, you know, one of your interviews that you have that, that thing as an actor, like how, how do you deal with that? It's so hard. No matter how people look like seeing ourselves on camera is like, how do you deal with which part? Painful, Like uh, the body image. Well, uh, you have to grin and bear it. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I've had a problem with eating for my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I view it as an addiction, so I dealt with it as an addiction. Yeah, uh, I've had times in my life where I've, uh, where my recovery from that addiction has been manifested better than others. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I'm happy to say that um, now nowadays it's been very good. Um, I, I don't like looking at myself particularly. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't mind it, but I don't, I don't, I don't love it. Um, yeah. But I, I. You know, I'm used to it. It's like hearing your voice. When you first hear your voice, you go, ooh, that's what I sound like. But if you listen to it enough, the difference between what yeah. you're used to hearing in your own head and what you hear back that's recorded gets less and less. And yeah. it's the same thing with being on camera. Um, I'm used to what I look like now, so it's not not quite as frightening as it, as it once was, you know. I, I'm still frightened. Every time I see a set and tape, I'm like, oh, my God. I put more layers of clothes <laughs> and then I look bigger. Than, it's like it's the struggle. Should I wear layers or just be no layers? Uh, yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, in Inner World, you know, I, take, I took my clothes off in Inner World a couple of times in that movie. And I didn't think much of it at the time. I thought, well, you know, this, this, the character. It's, I didn't. I didn't worry about it. I wasn't. I, I don't. I wasn't thrilled about it. I thought, but I thought, oh, okay. But then when the movie came out, there were several reviews that were amazingly unkind. That said, oh, there was one review that said Fred Melamed looks like a marshmallow that someone dropped in cat hair underneath the couch. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> yes. So mean. That's yes, I know. I didn't. I didn't think that had a place in a review, but somebody actually said that. Yeah. Oh, that's well, so now um, I only, I only, I, I only do uh, uh, gratuitous nudity. I, I never do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I only do it when it's unnecessary. 
when unexpected. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, no, people comment, all, of course. They they just say just mean things. And um, I, I have an issue. And now I don't. I kind of like I'm out of fucks to give, uh, to be honest. But, uh, but yeah, I have an issue with that. That's why I asked you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. I lost, I was, I was, when I, in the 1980s, um, in, uh, into the early 90s, I was over 400 pounds. I was really heavy, really heavy. A health issue more oh, than definitely. Yeah, and um, I lost some weight, a significant amount of weight. I lost about 150 pounds. Good. And I was driving somewhere in New York, and I inadvertently cut off this lady. I didn't mean to. I accidentally cut her off. And she rolled down her window at me, and she said, you fucking fat idiot. And I was like, I lost 100 pounds. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Let me, I, once I was in a parking lot at Trader Joe's, and I was uh, with my boyfriend, and we're both, like, athletic, right? Like, blah, but, like, big people. And so we were walking. <laughs> Somebody else, could you get your fat asses out of the way? I was like, what you call me? Like, anything else, they could have called me a whore, whatever. I wouldn't care. Who you call a fat ass? No, I was ready to fight. We were both ready to fight. Like, who was that? <laughs> yeah, it's not cute when they do that. People can be so mean. Yes, but, you know, definitely. But when you're an actor, you sort of have to accept that goes along with the territory. <laughs> you put yourself out there, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been doing a podcast in lingerie to get over myself. Yeah. You mean about lingerie or are you wearing lingerie? Well, I'm wearing lingerie. And my guests wear lingerie too. What do you mean get over yourself? That seems like... The... <laughs> get over the fear of being like exposed. Not exposed, nude, because I'm not. But exposed, like I, it's right there. Of course, the cushions are my best friends. I put them everywhere. But <laughs> it's it's a, a podcast about body positivity, except the way you are. But I had to like, I have to be in the journey of accepting myself the way I am. Right. So, so do, when you put these clothes on, does it make you feel any different? Do you feel sexier or do you not think about it or do you? Well, you know, the people around. Awkward? Yeah. Awkward. Oh yeah. T definitely awkward, sexy, but. Uh, awkward, but sexy? <laughs> yeah. My kind of sexy. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> awkward, sexy. Uh, very awkward, but now I'm feeling, yeah, you know what? To answer your question, wearing it and just having to push myself to do it. My manager pushed me, by the way. She started it. And I was like, no. <laughs> and then we, I did it. It just actually liberated me to the point where I'm like, I really don't care. This is the way I look. And I'm not perfect. And it's OK. And I want to inspire other people to feel you know, that they're OK, to love their bodies the way they are right now. Well, do you think you have to love it or just accept it? Both. You have to love it because if not, if you accept it, it's kind of like being married to somebody that you ain't kind of like. No, you got to love that person. <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> when, well, this all wrong. <laughs> I'm still hashtag. This is why I'm single. See, I'm a romantic. Uh, but, have yeah. you ever been married? Oh, yeah. Twice. Uh -huh. One was 15 minutes. The other one was a little longer. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like I'm a serial monogamist, but um, you've been married to so you're married. I am married. 
you're married. I wanted to ask you some marriage questions. We've been going for oh, a I'm, sure, I'm not sure the one to ask those marriage questions. I'll do my best, but. Uh... I know. Well, we can leave that for another time. If we've been going, this is like the longest podcast. You are such an amazing guest. An hour. Thank and you. Oh my gosh. And I, we can talk forever. People are like super interested. Here it is. Oh, look at this here. Uh, Gracie, always believe you're the shit because you are. There's always going to be haters. Oh, my God. I didn't mean to go that one. This was the one. Thank you, Joe. Nobody is perfect. And if you believe you're the shit, you will be easier saying than done. But is this true? Do you believe that? Do you think that, Fred? If you believe well, not exactly. I don't think I don't think I think I think it helps to be confident. But I think you can't manufacture confidence. I think here's what I think. It's human nature to want to feel better before we act better. Yeah. But in fact, you have to do the opposite. You have to act better and then you feel better. So I think you have to, if people say, well, I have a self-esteem problem. You have to act in a way that you would esteem if you were somebody else. Like, what do you admire in other people? They're honest. I'm just guessing. They're honest. They work hard. You can depend on them. Yeah. They're not, they're not full of shit. Mm -hmm. They're real. They're friendly, they're kind, maybe they're funny, they're talented. So if you act that way, you will have self-esteem. But the problem is a lot of times you feel like you can't be that. You can't, it's hard, you know, you say, we say, well, that's not, that doesn't come naturally to me. You have to mm -hmm. have faith that if you change your your outlook towards things, your, your attitude towards things, and you act in a way that is esteemable, that will develop in you self-esteem that will be unassailable. Nobody can take it away from you because you know who you are. I love it. It's It goes back to like, if you hear a lie all the time, then you believe the lie, right? The mind programming from social media. So it's the same thing. You're kind of mind programming yourself to be who you want to be and then just do it, right? Right. I don't like, like, Belief is even a level above what I think is what you want. In other words, what I mean by that is people say like, well, do you believe that if you do you believe that if you're friendly to people um, and you're a good person that it comes back to you? I don't believe it. I know it. It's not a belief. Oh, there you go. I it's, it's, it's so oh. much my experience mm -hmm. that no one in a million years can tell me it isn't true because I know from my own life that it's true. It's not a belief. That's like saying, do you believe your name is Fred? I know my name is Fred. It's been Fred my whole life. There it's you go. Not, it's not a belief. It's not like, well, I think this is true. I know it as much as I know that I'm sitting here. So mm -hmm. uh, the best way to judge things is by your own experience. I'll give you an example, right? Mm -hmm. Like people want to believe things about God. People believe things. Do you believe in God? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. I don't know if God is real. I may never know if God is real. Yeah, but know. I know that for me, when I started acting as though I could listen to an inner voice that was God telling me how to, handle things in my life. My life got better. Mm. Don't know if it was really God. Don't know if it really happened. But I can tell you absolutely without any doubt, my life got better. I agree. Same here. Yeah. So the question of do you believe it or not doesn't matter. 
Because the fact is, if mm -hmm. God is real and you don't believe in God, what does it matter that he's real? Yeah, it doesn't matter. You're right. You, right? You're so, like a philosopher. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm fascinated. Well, I mean, I've, I don't want to, have to walk around thinking about these things under COVID. I, you know, right. and now I can now I'm, you know, I've been, I've been on this kick to lose weight. So I can't eat, you know, a lot of people in COVID have been putting on weight because it's, you're nervous and as you can't go out of the house and I've, I've lost uh, 45 pounds in the last year. Oh, congratulations. Well, that's why they call it COVID-19 is 19 pounds that we all gained, right? Is that the reason? Yes. <laughs> you didn't know that. Well, you know, for me, it's funny, like, like um, not eating in restaurants mm. and not being on a set is actually helpful to me. Yeah. You know, and I don't keep a lot of things in the house. I mean, my wife eats things that I don't, and my, some of my, my kids eat certain things that I don't, but I don't eat any sugar. I haven't eaten any sugar in years and years. Yeah. And I don't, now I don't eat any bread other than very low carb kind of bread. And I don't eat, you know, pasta and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, for having this life, I mean, I always tell people I started social distancing in 1990, so it's not such a strange thing for me. I'm kind of used to it, you know. So, well, I mean, I'm just a, I, I spend a lot of my life alone. It's just the way I am. Yeah, more than I would like. Do you enjoy being by yourself with your own company? I enjoy it sometimes, but I could use some. I could, I could have more friends and more. And uh, you know, part of it is because of what I do. Right. Part of it is, you know, and I write when you're alone. Also, when you're an actor, I have a lot of friends who are actors. Mm -hmm. And I love actors, but, you know, actors can <laughs> make tiresome friends. So many, so many times you're going to hear about, you know, what I'm working on and my thoughts about that, you know. I know. But, you know <laughs> yes. Uh, and I tend to be a little solitary. You know, I think I have to be, I'm, I kind of have to be forced to, to mix with people. I'm that kind of person. Yeah. Um, so I, I wish I did more of that. Yeah. And I miss certain friends from back East that I, you know, they're back there. Yeah. How about you? Do you mix easily with people? Oh yeah, I do too much, <laughs> but I do, you know what I learned with COVID that I love being by myself. I enjoy my own company and I'm good. I'm enough. Like I have fun with myself. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I, you know, I uh, talking about this idea of being alone. The, yeah. the, the, somebody was teaching me once how to do cold readings, like, you know, pretend you have these powers of, you know, that you can see into people. Yeah. And one of the things that one of the lines that they always use is, you know, you're this unusual person who you can be in a room full of people and you're the center of, center of attention. And yet somehow you're still alone. Mm. Everybody feels that way about themselves. <laughs> you say that to anybody, they go, yeah, that's me. That's just like saying, it's like you're saying, so... I get this feeling that when you were little, you fell down, <laughs> you have a scar on your knee or your leg or your ankle. Everybody in the world has a scar on their knee. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah. Like half the world. Yeah. It's one of those things that you can do this thing like, you know, like you're this swami. Yeah. Like, in a room full of people, you're the center of attention, but sometimes you're so alone. Everybody thinks that. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but one thing is to to feel alone, and the other one is is just feeling alone. I, do you feel alone? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, I think I think there were issues that had to do with narcissism, the 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 the, the, the well known trope that we were discussing yes. in my childhood. 
mm -hmm. that uh, made me remove myself yes. from the grasp of my mother when I was very young, mm -hmm. like a little kid, and kind of be autonomous and kind of be on my own before I was wanted to be that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's forever made it hard for me mm -hmm. uh, to let people in at a certain level or to get into them at a certain level. Same here. Hashtag trust issues. That's the what, hashtag. What was the first? What about, trust oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Same here. Uh, I, I moved to from Argentina to here in my early 20s to be away from my mom. But she she always found me. Graciela, what are you? I can't find you. I call you. I call you all the time. Uh, but yeah, and then I wanted to be alone. It's like craving because you have these overpowering narcissistic uh, parents or parents. Uh, you, you want to be alone and not feel. You feel like anybody who's going to get close to you is going to be like putting pressure on you and, and, and damaging you too. Yeah, maybe have expectations of you that you don't that you don't want to live up to, or maybe influencing mm -hmm. you, forcing you to do things that you don't like, and all yes. that. But you know, I'll tell you an interesting thing about that that I realized. Um, when people are oppressed, mm -hmm. especially when they're young, yeah, they're oppressed by somebody that close to them. Mm -hmm. When they get older you might think that they want to live in a world free of that. They want to live a life where there is none of that power difference and all that. But usually they want to play the other role. That's yes. You, yes. Like I think we, we talked about this pre-show uh, and I read in a book about abuse that the victim of abuse can become an abuser or a victim, like either one or have both traits that you yeah. can be abusive because you've been taught by the best right that's how i feel like i've been taught that behavior yeah. is the best so uh, do you check your behavior like i ch i know i check mine all the time like was that narcissistic was that you know like i'm constantly checking my behavior well i'm probably not as good about it as i should be but yes i try and be aware of it i try and particularly with my children yes there you go yeah particularly with my children who i who, who i love oh how old are they 18. I have two 18-year-old boys, Aww. twins, but um, they were both born with autism, and Aww. one of them um, has no real uh, traits of autism left anymore. He's brilliant and very high-functioning, and the other one still has profound autism. Mm. So they're even though they're very close, they're different. They're very different. So that one, they're, they're 18 now, so they're not you know kids anymore. Yeah. Um, so uh, the one who is uh, who was extremely high functioning, his name is Lee, and he's he decided when COVID hit, he was supposed to go to college um, this past September, but yeah. he decided to to wait a year because college now you're on your computer <laughs> anyway. There's no going into class. There's no you know it's so he he decided to wait. Uh, so he's home with us, as is our other son Alec, um, who's also receiving instruction on the computer. But um, you know they're 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 very different. But I love them both, and I try to not inflict the same kinds of things that I experienced on me. But I have to say, in in, in honesty, I'm not always successful about that. You're we're not perfect. We're human. Yeah. Right. And as and as you and as I've heard it said, um, those people uh, didn't just press our buttons; they actually installed them. 
They, oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. So they, they know, you know, uh, how to get you going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I do love my kids very much. Uh, no one in no, no, no thing that I've ever encountered, including any form of romantic love or work or any accolades has given me half as much joy as I've gotten from my kids with all the problems that I've had with them. That is so sweet. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, the truth. it's the real truth. Yeah. No, I don't have kids, so I have no idea that kind of love. Uh, but the bromide about it is true. Is you think you know what love is, mm-hmm. and you have kids. That's like love on a different planet. Like Absolutely. you would do anything. I was I'd step in front of a train in a minute. Wouldn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you just, that's what makes my life like oh. worthwhile. Oh. Really? Honestly. Yeah. No, I believe you. I understand. And, you know, you make mistakes sometimes, but I would, if I really thought I was not a good parent, I, that would be the biggest regret of I could ever have. That I didn't didn't try, you know, because, um, well, I'll give you a nice story about that. I my dad was a very good father to me, and I once asked him. I remember he was shaving, and I was I was talking to him. I have a sister who's six years my junior, and I said to my father, I was probably maybe twelve, thirteen. I said, you know, Dad, you're such a good you're such a good father. I don't, how do you do it? How do you be such a good dad? And he said to me, all I have to do is look at you and your sister. So that's all I have to do. Oh, that is the sweetest thing. That just melted my heart. Just hearing that. And he meant it. I knew he meant it. And that's the way I feel about my kids. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. So what, this is the question I ask all my guests. I, I want to talk to you like for hours <laughs> and people are still like, we can continue. To- I, I, people have gone to sleep through this. They're waking up now. We're going to keep them up all night. We're going to be talking like this. Uh, this is what I ask all my guests. What do you want to be known for? Huh? Well, in the small world, I'd like to be known for being a good father. And in the bigger world, I'd like to ha- I'd like to be known for haunting the audience. Mm. In other words, when I see something good, it runs through my head. It rattles around in there somewhere between my consciousness and my subconscious. Mm-hmm. If I see a really good movie, like it's even if I even if it's weird, even if it's not even if, you know, it I keep thinking about it. It's it makes an impression on me. So I would like to I hope my hope is that whatever I do, whether it's funny or serious has that effect on people that it haunts their mind and makes them think about life and hopefully that it alleviates also some of their pain if they have it which everybody does at times and hopefully also that it gives them some some pleasure you know i think that's there's nobility in that you know some people think showbiz is kind of like shallow and all that um and there certainly has that to it but i think to actually give somebody 
a good hour in their day is not to be sneered at. <laughs> oh, I agree. A hundred percent. What would you like to be known for? Oh, for? my hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm little chance of that for me. <laughs> um, that I loved and helped others. Uh, I, I think that's more of what I feel my mission is on this earth, um, that everything I do has a positive impact um, and, and is a blessing to people. That's what I want to be known for. Oh, and I also left out enormous schlong. I forgot that. Did I say that right or I didn't? Sorry. Married, so I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> you have to take my word for it. Hashtag size queen, but that's okay. That's for another uh, show. <laughs> Maybe the lingerie show. <laughs> Definitely. I'll come on and I'll have a little A-line skirt. I'll be... We will buy the lingerie for you. That There's men's lingerie and I will judge. <laughs> I, have, I have my lingerie made for me by Roland of Poland right now, actually. <laughs> Skin tight. It's quite nice. something. Nice. Okay, stop teasing me. <laughs> and I think Big Schlong is a great way to end the show, don't you think? It's a great way to begin it. It's a great way to end it. It's, it's a good... in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you my whole goal is to haunt the audience. So, Well, we're haunted, including <laughs> the host. Yes, we're all haunted. And definitely, you need to do my lingerie show. <laughs> okay, I'm happy to. <laughs> oh, uh, this was such a pleasure. I, I can't. This is like the longest, and I we I could talk to you for like forever. You're amazing. Uh, you're profound. You are a beautiful human, and you are incredibly talented. Which I said that about two hundred times. Um, and you bring joy to people and you make us think and, and you give us wisdom. And uh, so thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you again. Definitely. Oh, yeah. You're going to be back. Great. In lingerie and dressed. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much, guys, for tuning in and all your beautiful questions. I'm so sorry I couldn't get through to all of them. But Fred Melamed is going to be back, and you guys can ask the questions. And I'll, I'll try to get all of them. Thank you, thank you. And I'll see you next Sunday at 7 p.m. PST. All right. Thank you, everybody. Bye -bye.